This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event, Reading the City. Please join me in welcoming our guests, James Loxley and James Robertson. My name is Ali Bowden and I'm the director of the City of Literature Trust. And as many of you will know, Edinburgh is the world's first UNESCO city of literature. And that permanent designation recognizes the fact that we have incredible literary heritage and also a wonderful, diverse, contemporary scene here in Edinburgh. And the Book Festival is a, a perfect example of that. It's the largest of its kind in the world. Could we, um, yeah, the air con's a little bit um, fierce. Dave, could we get the fierce air con to be less fierce? We don't We're not that hot, are we? We're not really that hot, no. Anyone roasting? No? Okay. I will, I will leave the um, very capable Dave to sort that out. We'll give it a few minutes. I will tell you that, um, yes, our designation also was awarded to us because so many writers have written about Edinburgh and used... Dave is a very clever man. Um, so many writers have written about Edinburgh and used Edinburgh as a setting. Um, and so that is what we'll be up to this evening. We're going to take you for a journey through Edinburgh's literary landscape. Now, there will be time for questions at the end. Um, and on a practical note, just before I introduce the authors, can I ask anyone with a phone to make sure it's set to silent? And if you're tweeting, please use hashtag EIBF2015. But let me introduce our authors. To my right, Professor James Loxley. He's Professor of Early Modern Medicine at the University of Literature. Edinburgh. Literature. Medicine. Literature. Literature. I'm just <laughs> I did wonder why he's here. So why is he here? I'm happy to operate on anyone if they want. <laughs> he's going to dazzle you any minute now. He has written also widely on Renaissance poetry and drama with a particular focus on Ben Johnston and Andrew Marvel, and on the literature, politics, and culture of the Civil War period. His current uh, research includes Lit Long, a collaborative project which is digitally mapping Edinburgh's literary cityscape, and we will be talking a little bit more about that very soon. James Robertson, who's a bona fide doctor, not this front <laughs> we are, is uh, a poet, editor, novelist, translator, and publisher. James studied at the University of Edinburgh with a PhD uh, focused on the novels of one of Edinburgh's most famous authors, Sir Walter Scott. James's first book, collection of short stories, was published in 1991, and since then he's published more than 30 books for adults and children. His work has been long listed for the Man Booker Prize, and his 2010 book, The Very Excellent and the Land Lay Still, won the Saltar <laughs> won the Saltar Scottish Book of the Year Award. His work is wide-ranging and has frequently appeared, Edinburgh has frequently appeared as a setting. So James, shall I, and this is very confusing, James and James. So uh, rather than calling them Loxley and Robertson in a very formal way, I, I shall say Professor Loxley and James. <laughs> so. Sorry. <laughs> James, would you like to... Doctor. Doctor. Doctor, Doctor James. <laughs> we'll, we'll find a way through we will find a way. We'll find a way through this. Well, do you want to start us off, perhaps, with a little... Yeah, little OK, something? I will. I'm, I'm going to start 
actually with something that uh, in a wee bit is a wee bit off beam from, from where we're going to spend most mm. of the time. I'm going to start with a, a reading from one of Edinburgh's most uh, famous and best loved authors, Muriel Spark. And that's because although Spark, you can sense that Edinburgh is in every bone of her being and, and, and comes through in her writing in so many different ways, the complications of Edinburgh, very few of her novels are actually set here. In fact, mm. you know, the most famous Private Miss Jean Brodie is really the only one that is really firmly set in Edinburgh. But she did leave uh, other writings about Edinburgh, and that's because of the nature of what we're going to talk about today. We thought it would be good to introduce, to top and tail this event with reading a short essay that she wrote that was published in the New Statesman in 1962 called Edinburgh Born. Some of you may know this, but it's a beautiful piece of writing about Edinburgh, and it also, I think, maybe explains a little bit about why uh, she didn't actually need to set her novels in Edinburgh because Edinburgh was sort of in her blood uh, in every other way. So I'm going to just come up here and I'm going to read this in two halves. Uh, I'll read the first half just now and then we'll have the rest of the discussion uh, and then I'll read the second half at the end um, just to, to finish off. So it's called Edinburgh Born and as I said it was written in uh, or published in 1962. In the spring of this year, I was obliged to spend some weeks in the North British Hotel in Edinburgh, isolated and saddened by many things, while my father's last illness ran its course in the Royal Infirmary. It was necessary for me to be within call. I do not like the public rooms and plushy lounges of hotels anywhere in the world. I do not sit in them, and least of all in one's native city is it spiritually becoming to sit in the lounges of big hotels. I spent most of my time in my room, waiting for the hours of visiting my father to come round. I think at such times in one's life one tends to look out of the window oftener and longer than usual. I left my work and my books and spent my time at the window. It was a high, wide window with an inside ledge, broad and long enough for me to sit in comfortably with my legs stretched out. The days before Easter were suddenly warm and sunny. From where I sat, propped in the open window frame, I could look straight onto Arthur's seat and the Salisbury crags, its girdle. When I sat the other way round, I could see part of the old city, the east corner of Princess Street Gardens and the Black Castle Rock. In those days, I experienced an inpouring of love for the place of my birth, which I am aware was connected with my love for my father and with the exiled sensation of occupying a hotel room which was really meant for strangers. Edinburgh is the place that I, a constitutional exile, am essentially exiled from. I spent the first 18 years of my life during the 20s and 30s there. It was Edinburgh that bred within me the conditions of exiledom. And what have I been doing since then but moving from exile into exile? It has ceased to be my fate and become a calling. 
My frequent visits to Edinburgh for a few weeks at a time throughout the years have been the visits of an exile in heart and mind, cautious, affectionate, critical. It is a place where I could not hope to be understood. The only sons and daughters of Edinburgh with whom I can find a common understanding are exiles like myself. By exiles, I do not mean Edinburgh-born members of Caledonian societies. I do not consort in fellowship with the Edinburgh native abroad merely on the Edinburgh basis. It is precisely the Caledonian society aspect of Edinburgh which cannot accommodate me as an adult person. Nevertheless, a very important word, nevertheless, it is the place where I was first understood. And we'll come back to the rest of that essay at the end of the session. Thank you. So we will leave uh, Muriel for a moment, but remember that word, nevertheless, we shall come back to that. Professor Loxley, do you want to tell us a little bit about Lit Long and that project? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Um, as you've heard uh, already, the, way, the, the depth of writers' engagement with uh, this city um, is extraordinary uh, and has been going on for a very long time uh, and has affected uh, an awful lot of writers. What I wanted to do with a group of colleagues uh, at the University of Edinburgh and the University of St Andrews uh, was to see if we might find a new way of mapping something of that literary engagement uh, with the city. We're familiar, I think, with uh, a sense of what the city means um, and of its literary, the literary connections of particular places. Um, and we're familiar with the great writers uh, who have done so much to establish that for us. Um, but what we wanted to do was to try and see whether we could get behind that a little bit um, and see what was uh, undergirding uh, that uh, most visible element uh, of Edinburgh's literary history. Um, so we decided that an interesting way to do this, possibly a foolhardy way to do this, I have to say, um, would be to try and get the computers to do it for us. So I teamed up uh, with some uh, fellow, some colleagues in English literature, some um, uh, colleagues in the School of Informatics, which is very lively and big at Edinburgh, uh, and people working in computer visualisation uh, up at St Andrews. And what we thought we'd do is see what we could come up with together by way of an Edinburgh literary map. And what we did was to create this thing, which is now called Lit Long, um, and which is up on the web. It exists as an app as well, so you can find it uh, and use it. Um, please do. I'd be very happy if you did. Um, uh, and we did that. We created that by, as I say, getting the computers to do some of the work for us. So rather than go through it and select a whole series of extracts that we thought captured the spirit of place in Edinburgh, which other people have done before and which follows to some extent a, a, a familiar path, what we thought we'd do instead was uh, cast the net much wider. In order to do that, we needed to have a large body of texts, a large body of works out there, novels and other bits of fictional writing and memoirs and all that sort of stuff, the kind of stuff where people are, uh, are um, reflecting on uh, the experience, their experience of the city and using it as a setting for their, for their work. Um, and luckily for us, uh, these days, you can get hold uh, of 
collections of books, large collections of books, in exactly the form that computers need them in order to read them. Um, so we made, uh, we, we went to the British Library, to the National Library of Scotland, to large collections elsewhere, and we got millions, uh, genuinely millions, um, of, uh, f uh, of digitized texts, uh, which we then fed into uh, our pipeline. Uh, and the way we did that was to start looking for Edinburgh place names. Uh, and we started looking for collections of Edinburgh place names. And we started finding ways of selecting the books which were most likely to fit um, our, uh, our criteria. And having done that, we selected that bunch. We were able to say the top, we, we got them ranked in the collections that we were searching. So we were able to say the top 10% will be the, roughly the right kind of area. So we'll have them. And we took the top 10% from each collection. And then we did rather more detailed text mining, um, they call it. Sounds like little sort of elves uh, digging their way into texts, but it's not. It's computer code. Um, and they went text mining for us. Um, and they dug out uh, all references to Edinburgh places. Uh, and what they were also able to do uh, is to give a precise latitude and longitude, a lat long, you can see where we got the name from, um, <laughs> for each uh, place uh, and to find a way, therefore, of making it available for plotting on a map. Um, so we did that. Uh, we let the machines do the work. We didn't intervene too much, as long as it was working. And then we st stood back and thought, felt a bit of a Frankenstein moment, what have we got here? What have we made? What have we created? Uh, and what we'd come up with was a database full of the works of 350 writers, some of them very well known, some of them not, as you'll hear in a little bit, um, 550 separate books, 2,300 place names in and around Edinburgh, and this is the one that amazed me, 46,000 extracts from those books, all organised around an Edinburgh place name. Um, so, as I say, we stood back and thought, ooh, what's this? <laughs> we weren't quite sure what we'd done, necessarily. Um, uh, and then, having created it, having got it to the position where it works and you can begin to interact with it, we thought, right, now we better see what we've got. Uh, so what we've been busy doing since uh, March, when it first went live, um, is digging into it ourselves, encouraging other people to dig into it and see what they can find. Uh, and some of what we're going to be uh, reading out to you uh, today, uh, some of the kinds of things we're going to be drawing our attention to today, uh, are works that have surfaced precisely because we've been able to look in this new way at Edinburgh's literary history. Uh, not to have to go into the library and get 550 books and put them on your desk and work your way through them all one by one manually, um, but to, uh, to let the computer do some of the work for you. Mm. And we thought that perhaps a, a good location to start this journey on would be where we are right now, Charlotte Square. So, oh, there we are. The magic of uh, internet and things. <laughs> So shall we, st shall we begin with Charlotte Square? Charlotte Square, yes, yeah. why not? When, when, uh, when we were deciding how to put this event together, we homed in on Charlotte Square, and I, using the app, went in and had a look through what came up, and, and it was really quite fascinating what came up. Um, and I, we've, I've really just identified three or four, two or three of, of, the, of the quotes that I thought were, were interesting for different reasons about Charlotte Square. And the first one comes from a very, really quite a well-known Edinburgh book, I suppose. It's um, uh, The Memorials of His Time, written by Henry Lord Coburn, which I'm sure many of you will know. It's a wonderful, wonderful book uh, in which he records his life and all the interesting people that he knew, but also the great changes that took place in Edinburgh 
in Edinburgh during his lifetime. It's published in 1856. And uh, James, sorry, Professor James, <laughs> is, going to, is going to read this extract to you. And it, it's basically, it's 1822 that uh, Coburn is, is writing about here. And it's just an indication of how the city was growing and how much it has grown since 1822 to the present day. Um, there are references to um, birds, for example, you'll get um, that you would not hear in a, all your lifetime in Edinburgh these days. Anyway, I'll let James read it and I'll explain a wee bit more at the end. It was about this time that the Earl of Murray's ground to the north of Charlotte Square began to be broken up for being built on. It was then an open field of as green turf as Scotland could boast of, with a few respectable trees on the flat and thickly wooded on the bank along the water of Leith. Murray Place and Ainsley Place stand there now. It was the beginning of a sad change, as we then felt. That well-kept and almost evergreen field was the most beautiful piece of ground in immediate connection with the town and led the eye agreeably over to our distant northern scenery. How glorious the prospect on a summer evening from Queen Street we got into the habit of believing that the mere charm of the ground to us would keep it sacred and were inclined to cling to our conviction even after we saw the foundations digging. We then thought with despair of our lost verdure, our banished peacefulness, our gorgeous sunsets, but it was unavoidable. We would never have got beyond the North Loch if these feelings had been conclusive. But how can I forget the glory of that scene on the still nights in which, with Rutherford and Richardson and Geoffrey, I have stood in Queen Street, or the opening at the northwest corner of Charlotte Square, and listened to the ceaseless rural corncrakes nestling happily in the dewy grass. <laughs> I love that. You've now got to go to the Western Isles to hear corncrakes. <laughs> um, Coburn was, was, was a, he's a, he's a great writer in many ways, but he was a great lover of trees. He, he rails at various points at, at the, the destruction of trees to build the new town and, and so on. And you can, but he also recognises that, 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 that this is progress and you can't stop it. Otherwise, as he said, we would never have drained the, the Norlock and got beyond it. So it's a, as ever, it's past and present um, fighting with each other. Mm. The next quotation is from, uh, that, that I really homed in on, which I just loved. It's from a, a novel called Annie Jennings by somebody called Leslie Gore. I know nothing about either the novel or the author. Um, published in 1869. And it's just a little extract. It's all that appears on the, on the app, I think. And it goes like this. Um, it made me think this could be a, a, a novel worth reading. Lady Merton was a very great lady. And although many people forgot all about it, she never did. <laughs> but finding it very difficult to get those, her equals, to remember in what direction Charlotte Square number X lay, she lived a rather solitary life. Creme de la creme, or no society, she said. And she was left with no society. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could merit a wee bit more investigation. But I also, I, I'm interested also, I, I don't know about, enough about this, but I wonder if a novel of 1869 might somehow have been in the library or on a shelf that, uh, that Muriel Spark might have taken off and whether that creme de la creme phrase somehow embedded itself into her consciousness, I don't know. The third, the third quote about Charlotte Square, is, it's, a, it's a very tangential quote, but I, again, it's from a writer that I know well and, and, and respect very much, Hugh Miller, the great self-taught polymath, the, the geologist and uh, editor of the Witness newspaper. 
who um, came to Edinburgh as a journeyman uh, stonemason um, in, uh, in the uh, 1820s, uh, I think I'm right in saying, might be 1830s. Uh, no, 1820s, of course it's the 1820s. And he recorded in his biography, his autobiography, My Schools and Schoolmasters, um, this, the great fire of 1824, which destroyed a great deal of the high street. The bit I want to, I'm not going to read the whole extract, but he comes down and he goes, to, he's, a, he's a very religious man, uh, Hugh Miller, and he goes to hear all the great preachers of the day, including a man called Dr. Cahoon, who preaches in Leith. Um, and he talks about how Cahoon um, has rather a feeble voice because he's an old man. And yet, nevertheless, he thinks that his theology was rather strong and solid in spite of his physical feelings. However, he says, um, and this is the bit you need to pay attention to, because you are all engaged in a cultural festival. And Dr. Cahoon has decided, and Humila is very unhappy about this, that actually uh, indulging in things like festivals is likely to bring the wrath of God down upon you. <laughs> so this is the bit I'm going to read to you. The worthy man, however, did me a mischief at this time. There had been a great musical festival held in Edinburgh about three weeks previous to the conflagration, at which oratorios were performed in the ordinary pagan style in which <laughs> amateurs play at devotion without even professing to feel it. And the doctor, in his first sermon after the great fires, gave serious expression to the conviction that they were judgment sent upon Edinburgh to avenge the profanity of its musical festival. <laughs> Edinburgh had sinned, he said, and Edinburgh was now punished. And it was according to the divine economy, he added, that judgments administered exactly after the manner of the infliction which we had just witnessed should fall upon cities and kingdoms. He's obviously thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah. I liked this reasoning very ill. Humilla says, God did not reveal that he had punished the tradesmen and mechanics of the high street for the musical sins of the lawyers and landowners of Abercrombie Place <laughs> and Charlotte Square. <laughs> Nor could any natural relation be established between the auditorios in the Parliament House or the concerts in the Theatre Royal and the conflagrations opposite the cross or at the top of the Tron Church steeple. All that could be proven in the case were the facts of the festival and of the fires, and the further fact that so far as could be ascertained, there was no visible connection between them, and that it was not the people who had joined in the one that had suffered from the others. So we're probably all right, <laughs> but anyway. Edinburgh has feature. sinned, and yeah. is still sinning. <laughs> oh, goodness. Ah. Yes, it's, uh, one of the great things, as you say, is discovering these uh, forgotten passages or forgotten writers, indeed, entirely, completely new books. And, and I'm struck reading the, or you know, listening to you say they talk about the, the or read the extract from Annie Jennings uh, about the creme de la creme uh, by some of the other kinds of things that you can come across um, just looking at these extracts uh, pinned as they are to place. Um, and there's a rather beautiful one, rather wonderful one, from a man called Johann Georg Kohl. Uh, who was a German travel writer, historian, geographer, and policeman. I think that's what they call a portfolio career. Um, and he says, on his, in his travels in Scotland in 1844, Edinburgh brings together all who are distinguished in Scotland by education, talents, or exalted rank. So there you go. Mm, that's us, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> what did he say about Glasgow? Merchants. <laughs> Merchants. 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 Ah. Yes. Well, shall we, shall we leave... Um, the debauchery of Charlotte Square, 
and uh, fly along uh, effortlessly along Princess Street and give um, Sir Walter Scott a jaunty wee wave as we head to Northbridge. Would that be a good location? Yes. To see what what pearls lie there. Northbridge, of course, uh, a, a long famous landmark um, and a place which uh, is enormously uh, significant and often remarked upon by residents and visitors alike. Um, and so we find the North Bridge evoked in a number of different contexts by, by Edinburgh writers. Um, and one of the most famous, uh, justly so, uh, is uh, the, uh, the little description that Dickens gives uh, in the Pickwick Papers. Uh, so I'm, sure, I'm sure plenty of you know the story of the bagman's uncle uh, when he tells his uh, spooky story. Um, and, uh, or a, a spooky story about, uh, about the, the bagman telling a spooky story about his uncle. Uh, and the bagman narrates uh, what's happening as his uncle uh, leaves uh, the Bailey's house in the Canongate, uh, walks up the street and crosses over uh, the North Bridge. And this is very much, I think, the visitor's uh, perspective, the visitor's view on the city. <coughs> Gentlemen, my uncle walked on with his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets, taking the middle of the street to himself and singing, now a verse of a love song and then a verse of a drinking one. And when he was tired of both, whistling melodiously until he reached the North Bridge, which at this point connects the old and new towns of Edinburgh. Here he stopped for a minute to look at the strange, irregular clusters of lights piled one above the other and twinkling afar off so high that they looked like stars gleaming from the castle walls on the one side and the Colton Hill on the other as if they illuminated veritable castles in the air while the old picturesque town slept heavily on in gloom and darkness below. Its palace and chapel of Holyrood, guarded day and night, as a friend of my uncle's used to say, by old Arthur's seat, towering, surly and dark, like some gruff genius over the ancient city he has watched so long. I say, gentlemen, my uncle stopped here for a minute to look about him, and then, paying a compliment to the weather, which had a little cleared up, Though the moon was sinking, walked on again as royally as before, keeping the middle of the road with great dignity and looking as if he would very much like to meet with somebody who would dispute possession of it with him. <laughs> there was nobody at all disposed to contest the point as it happened, and so on he went with his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets like a lamb. <laughs> if you walk down the middle of Northbridge now, you'd be confronted by a number seven bus. Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend yeah. it. It's interesting also, isn't it, though, that the Northbridge, the, in, that, in that extract, but in so many, it's this bridge between old mm. and new, between past and present, between mm. sometimes between poor and rich. Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely been that symbol. Yeah. Uh, in so many people's writing yeah. about the city. And still is, yeah. And still yeah. is. Yeah. And it's the way the landscape itself comes yeah. alive. Right. It's the way the, the buildings take on a kind of personality yes. for him immediately as, uh, as, as he's doing that. That's, that's what people find so hard to resist, I think, isn't yes. it? That sense of the city's personalities uh, coming through. Um, we do find uh, some other writers, of course, making reference to the North Bridge, often again as uh, this place that connects the old and the new. Um, uh, there's a, a Stevenson uh, uh, novel, his unfinished final novel, uh, in which the North Bridge becomes a barrier for a character who just can't cross it, just can't make the, the journey from the new town to the old. Um, and we find it also as a kind of location, uh, a sort of animated location in a number of, of different works by, by other writers. Rebecca West's second novel, The Judge, 
um, the, the, the cityscape of Edinburgh is kind of animated by the different characters' personalities. So the city takes on a different hue depending on whose point of view we're seeing it from. Um, so the North Bridge becomes this kind of menacing place when seen through the eyes of, a, of an unhappy uh, character um, uh, tracking down the, 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 the central female figure of the, of the book. Uh, and we also find it popping up in a, a body of work by a really interesting writer who I didn't know about mm. until I started prodding around inside, uh, inside what we'd made, with, on, inside what the computers had, had thrown up for us. Uh, and that's a, a man called James McGovern. Has anybody heard of James McGovern? He's a really interesting writer. He's, that's, actually, that's actually a pen name uh, for a man called William Honeyman. Uh, and Honeyman was a New Zealander. Uh, at least he was born in New Zealand. Um, but his family had emigrated from Scotland four years earlier. And when he was a young boy, back they came. Uh, and he established himself. And he became a, 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 a very uh, prolific writer. Uh, and he struck a vein of gold in Edinburgh detective fiction. <laughs> like others have done, uh, more recently, of course. Uh, and he published five books uh, between 1878 and 1884, um, which uh, s it set a series of short stories all around the city in various different ways. And what's really interesting about reading these things, if you haven't come across them before, they're all called things like experience of a city detective, reflections of a city detective, if you haven't come across them before, um, is how those standard kind of images, those, those really influential images of, of Edinburgh fiction come through. The, the, the figure of the uncanny doppelganger, um, the body snatchers, all of these sorts of things animate his detective fiction. So it's both kind of, uh, at a certain sense, in a certain way, kind of realistic fiction about the city, um, but also animated clearly by a sense of, of, of the kinds of significance that the city's already got. So I found that absolutely fascinating. But we should move on. Shall we move up the high street? Um, shall I begin with a little Boswell on the high street? Yes. Boswell is a scallywag, I adore him. Um, this is from the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides. Mr. Johnston and I walked arm in arm up the high street to my house in James's Court. It was a dusky night. I could not prevent his being assailed by the evening effluvia of Edinburgh. I heard a late baronet of some distinction in the political world in the beginning of the present reign observe that Walking the streets of Edinburgh at night was pretty perilous and a good deal odoriferous. <laughs> That's a fantastic word. We need Isn't that word some more. You need to use that more, much, much more. <laughs> yes, and let's have another one. We, can, uh, we have a, a quotation, what we couldn't do this without having James Hogg in here. Uh, so we have a quotation from James Hogg, uh, a little passage from uh, the, the, the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner, uh, a well-known passage. A mob is like a spring tide in an eastern storm that retires only to return with more overwhelming fury. The crowd was taken by surprise when such a strong and well-armed party issued from the house with so great fury, laying all prostrate that came in their way. Those who were next to the door, and were of course the first whom the imminent danger assailed, rushed backwards among the crowd with their whole force. The black bull, standing in a small square, small square, halfway between the high street and the cowgate, the black bull is an inn, not an actual black bull, um, <laughs> and the entrance to it being by two closes, into these the pressure outwards was simultaneous and thousands were moved to an involuntary flight. They knew not why. And the black bulls, actually, that's what you'll get. There's, there's some of the kind of tumult that arises around the, uh, the central figure here um, that's being uh, kind of um, spread around the city. Uh, the kind of crowd moving around in that kind of the way. But something like the Black Bull gave us terrible trouble uh, in Lit Long because it's gone. 
uh, and no one could actually tell us exactly where it is, or was, rather. So if anyone knows uh, where the black bull that Hogg was writing about actually is, do please let me know. We'd you love put, to you're know. putting out a call for a lost tavern. <laughs> lost tavern. <laughs> there is, yes. There is, there is, yes. So there are, there are other candidates elsewhere, but, but, but this one we don't seem to have. The, um, the, I think it has to be said that there are not a great deal of women. We have in 60. 60. 60 women writers. Yes. So perhaps as the, uh, as the database expands, more women will, will be included. But we found a, a lovely quote by Molly Hunter, who is um, a writer perhaps better known for her children's writing and teen writing um, and, and sort of fantasy writing. But it's a lovely piece that touches on the period when there were luck and booze just butting onto St. Giles, um, which are long, long gone. A monstrous looking creation, Gilmer's gaze shifted from the bustle in the lawn market to the toll booth towering above it, and he slowed his pace the better to examine the structure of the jail. As black and grim looking as any building of its purpose could be, it stood right in the path of the high street's traffic, which had a divide to flow through a narrow alley on one side of it and a rather broader one on the other. A row of ramshackle buildings, several stories high, leaned crazily against its western wall, with the shops of various kinds occupying their ground floors. Ribbons, gloves, and other trifles were the kind of goods on display there. And with amusement, Gilmer noted the brisk trade being done by the vendors of the gigaws. A strange place to come for the purchase of folderols, he said, smiling. I want you all to use the word fold roll when you go home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it, there are some limitations with our, our database, certainly, because we were working with uh, large uh, digitised collections, because we weren't digitising any books ourselves, and therefore we had to work with what we could get. And although that, uh, that's an, uh, a large and expanding uh, body of, uh, of works that's out there. Uh, there are limitations. Also, of course, we had, uh, we had to respect copyright. Uh, we were very lucky to have the agreement of, of, uh, of, 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 of some authors and their publishers to be able to include their works, um, but, uh, but there are plenty more. So, yeah, we, we very much hope to be able to add to this uh, as we go along. But, but I think I'm right in saying that you haven't managed to include poetry as well. That's right, yes, yes. Text mining and poetry currently do not mix. As far as I gather, they don't like it. Doesn't like lineation. Uh, can't work with that at all. So they can't work with po poems all broken up on different lines. Um, no, they terrible trouble. So uh, when I said, "Let's put lots of poetry," in, they got some fantastic Edinburgh poetry. Uh, my colleagues said, "No," uh, and they weren't at all uh, at all uh, keen. So that's later. That's down the line. That's down yes. the line as well. But if you have a, a yearning for um, Edinburgh poetry, there's a fantastic collection called Luck and Booze, which you can get, which is fantastic. Shall we? Shall we wander to the grass market? Mm. Let's see what the grass market brings us. Um, is my, my microphone still working? <laughs> <laughs> There's a, oh, dum 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 dum. There we go. <laughs> now you're just teasing us with your nose. There we go. Oh. Hey. Now I'm going to have to really test myself by holding the paper and the microphone at the same time. Uh, grass market, well, interesting, the grass market throws up dozens and dozens and dozens of literary references. Not really surprising, I suppose. Probably the most famous literary 
description of the grass market that happens in uh, Walter Scott's novel Heart of Midlothian, those early chapters with the Portis riots and so on. And it's not surprising that lots and lots of subsequent 19th century fiction seem to reference that, that scene. Um, but also, they, they tend to reference other things for which the grass market was famous, notably the, the execution of, of covenanters. Virtually every reference that I looked at from the app, um, from fairly obscure 19th century novels, um, had a description like this in them. This is from, uh, um, this, is a, this is not an entirely unknown author, this is from R.M. Ballantyne, but it's a novel called Hunted and Harried, which I don't know at all, from 1892. When Quentin and Peter arrived in Edinburgh two days later, they passed under the West Port, which was decorated with the shriveled heads and hands of several martyrs, and made their way to the grass market, which they had to traverse in going towards Candlemaker Row. Here they found a large crowd surrounding the gallows tree, which did such frequent service there. And there's, uh, there's references all the time to, to um, people being executed for their faith in the grass market. One of the most interesting books I've come across, and I really think this is a book that has to be, I'm going to have to go and find it in the National Library and have a good read of it, I think. It's called Two Arms by somebody called Andrew Balfour. I've got a funny feeling Andrew Balfour might have been a relative of Stevenson's and he might even yes. have written about it. He was a doctor, was he not? I'm, I'm being serious. <laughs> no, he seriously was a doctor. Was a doctor. Yes, okay, yes. Well, I think anyway, he wrote this part time. Uh, 1897, and this book is called To Arms! Exclamation mark. It is an incredible sounding novel from the extracts that are on the app. Everything seems to be happening here. Um, he first of all, he mentions people um, the, the, the people who have been glori who glorified God in the grass market. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a fight scene, which I'll just read a wee bit of here. It was horrible, but gloriously horrible, and I lost myself for a moment in the mere joy of fighting, in the delight of putting out my utmost strength, in the glory of swinging strong men off their legs and hurling them to the ground in the wild grapple, choking grip and crushing blow. But I soon saw that this could not last. They outnumbered us 20 to 1, and every close of the cowgate and entry of the grass market was no doubt spouting out its ragged rascals to their help. I caught sight of Dr. Solid. Sure, an X-Man. I caught sight of Dr. Solid near me, doing very valiant deeds, and I wondered if I had misjudged the man. And then we were borne back and further back, struggling and breathing hard and hitting freely, but without avail. It's great. And then later on in this novel, there's a reference to somebody um, called Mr. Pittendrich, who had become enamoured at one and the same time of a buxom dame lodging in Milne's court and a bonny young lass who lived in the grass market. And the hero, the narrator of the, of the novel, becomes the go-between for this Pittendrich character, carrying letters to each of these two objects of his devotion, until one day he gets the letters mixed up and delivers, <laughs> <laughs> delivers the wrong letter to each lady. My lady of Milne's court had a fit on the spot, he says. But Mistress Elsie, that's the one that bides in the grass market, screamed with laughter till she came to understand that this would put an end to my visits, when she pouted so prettily and had such a becoming dewiness on her long lashes that there is no saying what might have happened had not her mother arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and finding her speaking to a not ill-favoured and unknown young man, chased her up the stairs, calling her idle hussy and wanton baggage. <laughs> Well, I fled a pace, and this was the end of my comedy of the grass market. <laughs> <laughs> I want to publish this novel. Yes. <laughs> um, um, 
there's another, there's another uh, wonderful, I did actually know this quotation before, but I was very pleased to see that the app had picked it up. A wonderful uh, quotation, which comes from, uh, again, a very famous book. If you haven't read Coburn's Memorials of His Times, you should get a hold of a copy. There's millions of copies in second-hand bookshops everywhere. But another book of the same, of the same kind is um, uh, a book by Dean Edward Bannerman Ramsey, Reminiscences of Scottish Life and Character. Again, it's, a, it's published in 1858. Fantastically rich book that captures those times. And this description of Lord Rockville, a distinguished judge, I, I just think is wonderful. And it's one, we should all use this as an excuse. Lord Rockville was a judge distinguished in his day by his ability and his decorum. Like most lawyers of his time, he took his glass freely. Upon his appearing rather late at a convivial club with a most rueful expression of countenance, and on being asked what was the matter, he exclaimed with great solemnity, Gentlemen, I have just met with the most extraordinary adventure that ever occurred to a human being. As I was walking along the grass market, all of a sudden the street rose up and struck me on the face. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Actually, he comes to a sticky end. The story continues. He had, however, a more serious encounter with the street after he was a judge. In 1792, his foot slipped as he was going to the Parliament House. He broke his leg, was taken home, fevered, and died. So there you are. Oh. The last grass market quote is, uh, and this brings us back to Muriel Spark. Uh, from the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, obviously a very, very famous novel published in 1960. And this is when uh, the girls of... Um, Mercy. Mercy Baines. Thank you, yes. Are, um, are being taken on an outing to, by, by, their, by their teachers and they approach the old town. They approach the old town which none of the girls had properly seen before because none of their parents was so historically minded as to be moved to conduct their young into the reeking network of slums which the old town constituted in those years. The Cannon Gate, the Grass Market, the Lawn Market were names which betokened a misty region of crime and desperation. Lawn Market Man jailed. Now they were in a great square, the Grass Market, with the castle which was in any case everywhere rearing between a big gap in the houses where the aristocracy used to live. It was Sandy's first experience of a foreign country, <laughs> which intimates itself by its new smells and shapes and its new poor. I think that's just new such poor. a beautiful reminder of how, until very, very recently, Edinburgh's poor quarters, right in the heart of the city, were places you could step into from comparatively quite rich areas mm -hmm. and uh, I can remember goodness when I was a student coming to Edinburgh in the 70s um, being struck by how poor and run down the middle parts of the old town Edinburgh still were even then mm -hmm. so anyway that brings us back to Muriel Spark. Yes well before we come to questions um there's another way to sort of slice the pie isn't there? There is yes um we've been going by location here, obviously, as you've, as you've heard. Um, but you can also uh, go by uh, author, of course, uh, and you can go by keyword. So you can just search for a word and see what comes up as well. 
Um, so I just uh, thought I'd stick in a typical Edinburgh word, uh, or a word that seemed typically Edinburgh-esque, and see what came up. So I stuck the word wind in. Um, and I'll just read you three little passages, three contrasting passages um, that came up when, uh, when I did that. Um, the first uh, one uh, is uh, from James Grant. Jane Seaton, or the King's Advocate, is the name of the book. The sun was in the west, and through the long shadow of the netherbow, so far down the vista of the cannon gate, that almost reached to the high cross of the Holy Rood. Save when a summer wind made strange sounds among the peaked roofs and enormous chimneys of the narrow closes, the streets were still and quiet. So there's a sense of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the audible um, wind accompanying uh, the scene. Uh, here's another one, a uh, rather fantastic one. Edinburgh in the early 1970s had a special dowdy kind of magic, especially in streaming wind-chilled winter. The marvellous and the mundane inhabiting the same stairs, worlds of night and day rubbing shoulders both begrudgingly and with relish, often without acknowledgement and sometimes without realising it. I said, I think that writer's got real talent. That writer's <laughs> going places. Someone called, someone called James Robertson. Um, <laughs> Uh, and a final one, which actually also brings us back to Charlotte Square, because this is uh, by someone who you may have heard of called Catherine Sinclair, uh, who was a writer of fiction for children and a benefactor of Edinburgh. Uh, she is famed for having uh, fought long and hard to provide seating in the main thoroughfares of the city so that people could rest themselves. Um, and this is a little uh, a, a quotation, a section from uh, her book Holiday House. That reminds me, said Lady Harriet, of a droll mistake made by the African camel when he landed at Leith. His keepers were leading him along the high road to be made a show of in Edinburgh at a time when the wind was particularly high. And the poor animal, encountering such clouds of dust, thought this must be a simoon of the desert and threw himself flat down, burying his nose in the ground according to custom on those occasions. It was with great difficulty that it could be at last induced to face the danger and proceed. <laughs> Ah, now, good camels. So, duh, we, we can move to questions now. Does anyone have a question? If I don't... There's no immediate hand, so I'm going to give you a moment. Oh, there's a gentleman with his hand. So, there's a lady and a gentleman who come with a microphone. Oh, we're going to steal James. James, we're going to give up your microphone. And so, it's the gentleman just straight ahead of me, three rows back. Thank you, thank you. I was just wondering what was the location that got the most mentions in the heart of Middle Odeon or the <laughs> The most mentions is Edinburgh itself, um, which we kept in as a place name, because uh, to leave it out would be a shame. Um, and that, we centred that right in the middle of, uh, right at the, the crossing point of uh, Georgia Fourth Bridge and the High Street, of, of, of course. Um, but in general, uh, well, Grass Market is certainly one of the densest places. Uh, Waverley Station, North Bridge, the castle. Mm. Um, what we found is quite how much travel writing there is, um, of certainly in the period where we've got most of our books from, which is kind of the, the late 18th through to the mid-20th century. There's a huge amount of people, lots of people seem to want to go travelling and then write up their journeys afterwards. And some of them are, are really well written, surprisingly well written. Um, but yes, uh, those sorts of places, the places you'd, you'd expect, the places most visited uh, and most invested in are the, uh, are the, most, uh, are the most frequently uh, referenced. But one of the lovely aspects of the interface is that you can scroll down into a street or a close and you can see if there's any quote attached to that. It's actually, it's a total time sink, by the way. It's an absolute warning to you. I've lost days of my life in it already scurrying around. Um, are there any other questions? There's a gentleman just up there. 
Whilst we um, run, will you tell us about the Scott app that you're developing? Oh, yes. Um, Walter Scott, there he is. Um, because it is Walter Scott's birthday today. Hooray! Happy birthday, Walter. So we sing happy birthday. No, we don't. No, no, uh, no. I suspect <laughs> we don't sing happy birthday. Uh, but um, we are trying out all sorts of new things. We've got all this massive amount of data and lots of different ways of interacting with it. Um, so we're going to try and find new ways to do that. So on the main website, uh, you can find a thing called the Lit Long Lab. Uh, the jokes just get worse. Um, and inside there, soon, there will be a bespoke uh, Walter Scott interface in the colours, sort of, of the Scott Tartan. I think the green's gone missing, but nonetheless. Um, so you can, you can just explore Walter Scott if that's all you want to do. Um, and we're hoping to be able to make mobile versions of, of, uh, of author-specific ones available later as well. So you can decide, who shall I go around the city with today? Will it be Stevenson and Spark or Scott or whoever else? But we shall see. Those, those are yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs> so our question. Uh, you, you tried wind. Uh, did you try drich? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Any hits at all for fun? <laughs> yes, there are. Uh, sun definitely comes up. Um, uh, I did we tried scone we as well. We tried to think of Scottish words. We got like uh, ha. There's, there's, a, there's a fair few for ha. Um, I, I asked James if we could put in phrases like "you'll have had your tea." <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't do phrases. It yet. doesn't do phrases yet. We need to we need to tweak the search interface, make it a bit more sophisticated, so you can do phrase searching. But but yes, there are just yeah. There is in fact you we if you go onto the main website, there's a little arrow, or there will be soon. At the moment, you just hover your cursor over the box, and a great long list of keywords comes up so you can just scroll through and then see where they are and see which books they occur in so um, as as Ali says it's a bit of a time sink if you if, you're, your if you're not careful your <laughs> there are few, as you said there's still a few little teasers things to oh, be yes. teased out aren't there? because I, I I think I put in George Square at one point and it did throw out one or two references to Glasgow yes. so that, that, yeah. that it just it's inevitable with technology like this that you have to iron some of those yeah. little glitches yeah. out don't I? because we didn't because we haven't we haven't read every extract, e extract ourselves. Uh, we we, we fine-tune the, the technical capability and let the machines do it, which means that there are... We call them wormholes. Uh, they're kind of false positives to some extent, um, or a place name that is an Edinburgh place name, but the reference is actually to a place name elsewhere. So it's a fancy name for things going wrong, isn't yes. it? Yes. Wormholes. Right. It's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> um, but but people, who, people who find these features are encouraged to tell you about They it, can yes. indeed yes. tell us about it. We will get rid of the most egregious, um, but we're quite fond of some of them. But it is the case, of course, that places which have a lot of place name overlap, and Glasgow is one, uh, a lot of place name overlap with Edinburgh. So obviously places like George Square, as you say, Botanic Gardens, Southside, City mm. Chambers, um, that to our algorithm looks like Edinburgh. But of course, it's also Glasgow, so uh, so you will find some which are just which are definitely a little bit on the wrong side. But uh, uh, you can either choose to go down the wormhole, um, or if you if if you take offence at it, then just do let us know. Okay. There was a lady with a question. Um, I actually had two short questions. The first one was, are you planning to roll this out to any other cities? And the second one was, are users of the app able to send in suggestions or writings that they've found that aren't included already? Uh, well, the technology is such that you could do it for any city or any place. You could do it for the whole world um, if you wanted. That would be a bit much, wouldn't it? Um, but you could. Uh, had we but world enough and time, as someone else said. Um, so, yeah, it would work with, with, the, with any body of literature because you just need to... It's, it's a thing called a geoparser, essentially, that searches the text for place names and then geolocates them. 
Um, so uh, you could do it for anywhere and for any body of text. We decided to do it with Edinburgh because Edinburgh deserves it. Um, and there's so much fantastic stuff out there uh, beneath the surface. Uh, so we wanted to try and get that out. Um, there is, at the moment, uh, because we had, we had to do it in 15 months, it was a bit, bit, bit of a rush. Um, so at the moment, there's limited scope for interactivity. If people want to suggest things or correct things, there's an email address you can write to. Uh, what we would hope to do in a future incarnation is introduce more interactivity with it so people can upload their own writing, uh, perhaps, um, or take a tour and kind of uh, upload the tour that they took so that other people can follow in their footsteps. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots more we can do with it than we've been able to do so far. Some more exciting developments to come. I'm just aware of the time. Yeah. Shall we move on to Spark and end, end okay. with Muriel? Absolutely. Um, I just like that idea of surfacing, things being brought to the surface that have been lost. Mm. Uh, I think that's one of the real joys of this. Uh, the second half, I was going to read the second half of Muriel Sparks' essay, Edinburgh Born, and I finished on that very significant word, nevertheless. Um, she's uh, talking about being in exile, and uh, the sentence I finished with was, nevertheless, Edinburgh is the place where I was first understood. James Gillespie's girls' school, set in solid state among the green meadows, showed an energetic faith in my literary life. I was the school's poet and dreamer, with appropriate perquisites and concessions. I took this for granted and have never since quite accustomed myself to the world's indifference to art and the process of art and to the special needs of the artist. I have started the preceding paragraph with the word nevertheless, and am reminded how my whole education in and out of school seemed even then to pivot around this word. My teachers used it a great deal. All grades of society constructed sentences bridged by nevertheless. It is my own instinct to associate the word as the core of a thought pattern with Edinburgh particularly. I can see the lips of tough elderly women in musquash coats taking tea at McVitie's, enunciating this word of final justification. I can see the exact gesture of head and chin and gleam of the eye that accompanied it. The sound was roughly, nevertheless. <laughs> and the emphasis was a heartfelt one. I believe myself to be fairly indoctrinated by the habit of thought which calls for this word. In fact, I approve of weather forecasts and barometer readings that pronounce for a fine day before letting rip on the statement, nevertheless, <laughs> it's raining. <laughs> I find that much of my literary composition is based on the nevertheless idea. I act upon it. It was on the nevertheless principle that I turned Catholic. <laughs> it is impossible to know how much one gets from one's early en environment by way of a distinctive character, or whether for better or for worse. I think the puritanical strain of the Edinburgh ethos is inescapable, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. In the south of England, the puritanical virtues tend to be regarded as quaint eccentricities, industriousness, for instance, or a horror of debt. A polite reticence about sex is often mistaken for repression. On the other hand, spiritual joy does not come in an easy, consistent flow to the puritanically nurtured soul. Myself, 
I have had to put up a psychological fight for my spiritual joy. Most Edinburgh-born people of my generation, at least, must have been brought up with a sense of civic superiority. We were definitely given to understand that we were citizens of no mean city. In time, and with experience of other cities, one would have discovered the beautiful uniqueness of Edinburgh for oneself, as the visitors do. But the physical features of the place surely had an effect as special as themselves on the outlook of the people. The Castle Rock is something, rising up as it does from prehistory between the formal grace of the new town and the noble network of the old. To have a great primitive black crag rising up in the middle of populated streets of commerce, stately squares and winding closes is like the statement of an unmitigated fact preceded by nevertheless. In my time, the society existing around it generally regarded the government and bureaucracy of Whitehall as just a bit ridiculous. The influence of a place varies according to the individual. I imbibed through no particular mentor, but just by breathing the informed air of the place, its haughty and remote anarchism. I can never now suffer from a shattered faith in politics and politicians because I never had any. When the shrill telephone in my hotel room woke me at four in the morning and a nurse told me that my father was dead, I noticed with that particular disconnected concentration of the fuddled mind that the rock and its castle loomed as usual in the early light. I noted this as if one might have expected otherwise. It seems right to... Uh let Muriel Spark have the last word. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking James Loxley and James Robertson. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.